just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Welcome to Holy Smoke, The Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. My guest today is a former Anglican chaplain to Her Majesty the Queen, Dr Gavin Ashenden. He left the official Church of England in 2017 in protest at what he saw as its failure to defend the essentials of the faith and Christian culture. He's accused the CAV of swallowing wholesale an agenda of political correctness. He was briefly a bishop in a breakaway Anglican church, but just before Christmas, he converted to Catholicism. Now, some people, including me, would say that's a brave thing to do right now, at the very moment that Pope Francis is genuflecting to secularism. But our conversation today isn't going to be about the Catholic Church. We've had enough of those but rather what's happening in the Church of England. I've been surprised, even shocked, by the behaviour of the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who seemed such a promising appointment for Orthodox Christians. He came from the doctrinally Orthodox Holy Trinity Brompton. He was previously an executive in a city oil firm. So the last thing I expected were partisan left-wing interventions in political debates, and even jumping on the transgender bandwagon. Welby's just warned schools against having boys' and girls' uniforms because it might cause problems for transgender pupils. So, Gavin, why has this apparently almost total surrender to the secular zeitgeist overtaken the Church of England so quickly, and under Justin Welby, of all people? Let's try and uh, and unpack the issues that present themselves to us. I think the first one is that you're quite right. The Catholic Church, at its weakest, is is as weak as the Church of England. As the tectonic plates of culture shift, and with enormous rapidity, both ecclesial organisations at their worst are dealing with it badly. I think the difference between the two is that the Catholic Church has got the resources at its best to deal with it well, And I don't see the Church of England as having any resources at all to deal with it well. It it seems to me to be utterly unself-aware, theologically, spiritually, existentially. It's as if it's been populated by a group of middle managers who are preoccupied with tasks that have to be done without any sense of any bigger picture. I think the thing about Justin Welby is that he was chosen for a task, I mean, he very nearly didn't make it. The people who had chosen him for the task got wrong-footed by Rowan Williams resigning quicker than they thought he was. And the powers that be, such as they are, without being too conspiratorial, had fingered Welby a while ago, perhaps when he was at Coventry, and propelled him through the ranks for no particularly good reason. He hadn't actually achieved very much. He's a very nice man, but he's not outstanding um, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. He's a competent man with some experience in the business world. And I must say, I think he's put it to very good use. I think as a manager of the Church of England, he's been exceptionally successful. But the problem is we're not dealing with a secular organisation. We're dealing with a very complex thing that we call the church, which is a composite mixture of a whole load of things. And 
The problem with making a manager as competent as Justin Welby into Archbishop is that, in a sense, he reduces the church to, to the lowest common denominator of an organisation. And if you do that at the same time as being almost completely unself-aware of metaphysical, spiritual, traditional trajectories, then you, you end up with a rather badly run organisation that's just doing religion. So what are the concrete manifestations of this lack of spirituality, this managerial ethos that you talk about? I think there are only two reasons for having a Church of England. Um, the, the first is that the Church of England has a vision of something that remains undiscovered in the Catholic Church. So, you know, it's a reform movement, a Reformation Church. The whole point about reforming anything is you put it right. So there has to be some kind of relationship between the parent body and the derivative prophetic agency. And, and, the, and the Church of England ought to be, I mean, it is, historically it is, a derivative prophetic agency that wants to say things to the Catholic Church. And I mean, there were a number of important things it had. I mean, one is the offering the liturgy in the vernacular. I'm a great fan of the Latin Mass, but nonetheless, you need to offer something in the vernacular as well. And it's done very well in terms of making the laity feel more engaged than otherwise. And the, the other thing that it would do in terms of its Erastian nature is it would make use of its privileged status to say to the state, we are your conscience. We're the religious conscience you haven't yet discovered. And so we're going to help you in, in your journey of self-discovery, your journey of, of ethical negotiation. So here we go. But I think it's the start of feminism that really presents the church with its huge cultural challenge. Two things happen. We have birth control and we have capitalism. And those two things utterly reorder the way in which sexes work domestically. And this puts this as an enormous challenge for the church because... It doesn't really have a narrative that it can easily offer an industrialised capitalistic society. It just kind of panics and says, well, here's, here's what we've always thought, it, but it should have done better than that. But while the Catholic Church, if you like, hasn't done better than that, the Church of England has done worse than that. It's simply accepted the pragmatic narrative and said, let's go on being religious, <laughs> almost like kind of smearing a pattern of spirituality across a badly baked cake and hoping that it still tastes nice at the end. So I don't think either church has done particularly well. But as the challenges of secularization have grown, Camille Paglia said the other day, the great mistake of feminism, it just never, never thought about motherhood. And no one's thought about fatherhood. Much of the trouble we have in the inner cities is because there aren't any fathers around offering role models for kids. So, so suddenly we have a society in which neither motherhood nor fatherhood are thought about, engaged with, modelled. And in this, the Church of England unthinkingly simply throws itself into the cultural river and thinks that by going on doing religion, it can make sense of itself and its own relationship with society. Well, when you say the Church of England's thrown itself into the cultural river, lovely phrase, but can you give me some examples? I think one of the things the Church of England should have done is to say, if we are part of the Catholic tradition, we're not going to change anything until we have got an understanding of what's going on. I mean, it's certainly taken me the last 30 years to try and understand what's behind the development of secularism. So I think one of the first things is it shouldn't have ordained women to the priesthood until it had a theology of priesthood and a theology of sexuality. It didn't do any theology. Um, it was a purely political movement because it was embarrassed to be out of step with secular society. That's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, isn't an alternative explanation that the Church of England was always a coalition between Catholics and Protestants who had their own fully fleshed out theologies only they were different theologies. That's certainly true, but I think it's much more than that. 
there was a Catholic theology, but the only person that I think was expressing it was Eric Maskell. Um, he was the only person writing about, about sex and gender, and, and he was doing it well, but no one took any notice of him. I mean, actually, to be honest, I'm afraid the Catholic movement didn't cover itself with glory theologically. It didn't read Maskell and understand it. It just simply said, leave us alone, we're happy as we are. And the Protestant group never understood what it was to inherit a Catholic structure. It didn't know what priesthood was. It didn't know what the Eucharist was. It had no theology of, of gender. It was entirely pragmatic, as Protestants are. They just want to do the thing. So what you had was a church which claimed to be a reformed Catholic church, and it didn't do any reforming and it didn't do any Catholicism. It just pragmatically did religion and was desperately afraid of being left behind. As the sort of the surrounding society said, we have a secular vision of progress and you better not get left behind. And instead of saying to society, what is your secular view of progress, especially in the light of the horrors of the 20th century, before you tell us we're being left behind, we'd like to ask you where you think you're going. So there was a conversation that needed to be had by the Church of England with the surrounding society. And you say, what's it done wrong? I suppose the first thing is it never had that conversation. And if you look at the Archbishops of Canterbury who met Pope John Paul II, who were Donald Coggan, Robert Runcie, George Carey, Rowan Williams, always, I think, some sort of gulf, not necessarily intellectual gulf, but some sort of gulf in moral stature. I don't think there would be now, but... I felt that the Church of England and, and therefore the Anglican Communion had a knack for picking the wrong leaders. Well, certainly, the, I don't know if there are any right leaders. <laughs> and certainly the leaders it's had haven't helped at all. I mean, Carey, he's a very nice man, George Carey, but he didn't bring the theological and intellectual, perhaps even the spiritual gifts to the table that were required by an archbishop, forcing ahead a process of change at a pretty critical moment in national history. And then people reposed such hope in Rowan Williams, patently holy, intellectually, culturally sophisticated to an extraordinary degree, and then it fell apart so quickly. Well, I don't think it did. I'm a huge fan of Rowan Williams. The wonderful thing about Rowan was that if you said something to him, he understood what you had said and was willing to give it space in the conversation. And the other wonderful thing about him was that he took his archiepiscopal role very seriously as the referee in a ring. And he knew that, that the ring contained wholly disparate and contradictory and pugilistic elements. And it was his job to, to love them, to hold them, to understand them, not to let the thing fall apart in, in sort of anarchic pugilism. And I think he did it exceptionally well. Well, that really does surprise me because what I remember of Rowan Williams is of somebody wringing his hands in the prescribed Anglican manner and saying ostensibly wise, but actually almost incomprehensible things, while the structures of the Church of England, and especially the Anglican Communion, which basically ceased to exist on his watch, collapsed around him. Well, the problem with an archbishop is that he had this... So a pre-Welby archbishop had no power. There were no levers what Rome could pull. If you understand how the Church of England works, then it's a very complicated beast. You have the archbishop at the centre, not unlike the Pope, actually. The power is in the curia. I was once on a pilgrimage where our leader had, had Benedict's phone number and phoned him up because there was a crisis. I, I was about to write a scoop in the Church Times and my Catholic friend said, please don't write it. If the curate discover that Benedict has a private phone line, he's sunk completely forever, so be quiet, don't do it. In a sense, the Archbishop of Canterbury was also an is, was before Welby, an isolated figure, surrounded by a group of different power interests who controlled different areas of the church. But he had no power at all. What he did was, by a sheer grace of personality, preside over a warring centrifugal organism 
and hold it together for as long as he could. One of the things that Welby did immediately, as a, as a, as a manager, he came and discovered he had no leaves of power. So he began to create some, and he's done it very effectively in terms of producing the levers. But the intended outcome, I think, has been lamentable. But you know, congratulations on his managerial skills. When you say that the outcome's been lamentable, what do you mean? A, a church has to operate at a number of levels. Of course, it has to be administratively competent. Of course, it has to be well run. It's appalling when it isn't. The cost in human casualty is dreadful. We know that. But it also has to have a charism. It, it has to have more than just a spirituality. It has to have a vocation from God, I think, to know how it's serving God at a particular point in history. Um, St. Paul talks about the spirit of discernment. And to do this, you need to bring your best intellectual gifts and your best spiritual gifts and to fuse, if you like, the, the pragmatic and the prophetic. Uh, the, the Church of England has given up completely on the prophetic. It has no prophets. And one of the things it did was it made it utterly impossible for anyone with any kind of prophetic charism to be appointed. Perhaps the last person that most people would would, would recognise that would be Ramsey. But, you know, Ramsey would never make it to our deacon today. <laughs> there's no holiness tradition. There's no prophetic tradition. The, the charismatic movement might have done it, but it was too facile. And so what we're left with is we're, we're left with some not very competent middle managers doing religion not very well. And that's not enough for a church. But the Church of England would say that it does have a prophetic voice. In fact, I suspect that the word prophetic is used more often than ever in the past. The problem, as I see it, is that its concept of prophecy is alarmingly political. Yes, it's exactly what it is. One of the things we always have to do is to say, well, what do you mean by that, of course? And there are lots of words that the Church of England misunderstands, and prophecy is one of them. So I have a, a law of inverse proportions. The, the less you pray, the less you're aware of the, what we would call the supernatural and the metaphysical, the spiritual, the more you want to compensate by finding some form of political significance. The problem with political significance is that even if you manage it well, it will only last a generation. If, for example, you're an Irem Bevin and, uh, and you, you manage to have the most immense political impact, it will still only last a generation and a half. If you're Jeremy Corbyn, it will last five minutes. Even Churchill, he had no political influence after his moment of vocational engagement in the Second World War. So it's a silly thing to think that you can express spirituality politically. Because first of all, you've got to get your political judgment right. And that's jolly difficult. But if few of us are confident, we can do that. And secondly, it's only going to last for a generation. So why are you doing it? Because actually, if you get your prophetic impact right, you, you can last for generations. And we have a whole series of renewal movements. Newman's Oxford movement infused the Church of England with, with gifts that lasted two generations. The Clapham sect did exactly the same. You know, Wesley's Wesley. You look to see where the hot centres of spirituality are, and then you have things that really last. So why would a church give up on its prophetic charism and do politics? But at the moment, I think that's all the Church of England does. It, it, it mistakes a kind of soft socialism for prophetic, and that's disastrous. It's, it's wrong and it's useless. A lot of people, including me, would say that this is precisely the trap into which the Catholic Church is now falling under Pope Francis, some of whose recent pronouncements sound like a parody of a right-on Anglican vicar. And this is the Catholic Church you've just joined. <laughs> and you'd be right. Of course you'd be right. Because the, the, you know, the dilemmas are the same. And, and liberation theology was, was, if you like, a very sophisticated and a very noble attempt to push the boundaries of an infusion of the political and the prophetic to see where it went. It was a jolly good idea to try it. 
And I was very interested to see where it went. And the nice thing about being my age and looking back on liberation theology is I, I get to be able to tell you it didn't work. It was the best of the attempts. So why on earth can't Anglicanism look and look at the best of attempts and say, well, okay, that doesn't work. Let's consider a different vocation in our relationship with society. You might want to say, well, the Catholic Church hasn't learned its lessons either. And you'd be right. But that's partly because at the root of the human condition is this constant struggle between love and power, if you like, between Jesus and Nietzsche almost. And the church forgets. The lure of power is so seductive particularly if you're not saying your prayers and you're beginning to wonder whether or not you have any force in the spiritual life. The, the lure of power is so seductive as an alternative that the church very often slips that way. And when it does, that, it needs a monastic tradition. It needs a prophetic tradition to call it to account and say, no, whenever we've done that, it's had the most terrible consequences come back from that seduction. Yes, the Catholic Church has to come back from that seduction as much as the Anglican Church does, but I think it has resources to do that. Well, I can understand how monastic movements, revival movements, renewal movements can strengthen bits of the Anglican and Catholic churches, which are populated by Christians, often young converts, who've signed on the dotted line, who believe in, as they say, the truths of Orthodox Christianity. But they are a tiny proportion of the population. And I'm wondering how on earth the churches can speak prophetically to a 21st century in which, unlike the 19th century, unlike maybe the 20th century, the doctrines of Christianity, or actually any religion, are not self-evidently true, but in fact, extremely implausible. Oh, that, that, I mean, that's a wonderful question. You know, that's almost the question, <laughs> if I may say so, brilliantly put, and I don't know the answer. I mean, if I did, I'd be a good archbishop. And I don't. So thank God I'm not. But it's the question that we have to start worrying away at. I mean, one of the things that's happened in our lifetime is, you know, we've we've gone from a culture where you could go into a school and tell a Bible story or use biblical language, and the and the kids would have some idea of what you're going on about. And if you did it with verve and imagination and plausibility, the kids would probably go home and say, you know, that that God thing that that was kind of all right. And it would build up as a degree of capital of uh, appreciation or, uh, or respect or dignity, whatever. But we've lost that completely. There is no narrative. I mean, even in my time, we had to start teaching English literature completely differently because the kids who came in with English A-level had never read Milton. They hadn't read much Shakespeare. They, they knew nothing about the Christian narrative over the last 500 years back, you know, back to Chaucer. They, they, they didn't know. It was blank. It was almost as if the whole of Christian literature before the 20th century was coded for them and you had to help them decode it. So that's a sort of microcosm of the, of the much bigger and more serious problem we have in society. I think the contemporary church has to, has to, doesn't have to do anything, but, but the quicker it realises it has no capital to live off from the past and begins to re-engage with a wholly different post-Christian culture, the quicker it will begin to find some answers to that very difficult question. Okay, here's a difficult question for you. You find yourself Pope, or alternatively a very powerful Archbishop of Canterbury, and you're allowed to pick just one project on which you're going to concentrate. What would it be? Um, for me, <laughs> it would be monasticism. <laughs> I would say, um, if I can name drop for a moment, I, I had dinner with, with Tom Holland when he was halfway through Dominion. 
And one of the things Tom said to me is, I don't understand why the church isn't majoring in its strength. Its strength is the supernatural. Its strength is its vision of heaven and hell, of saints and angels, of miracles, and of a, a most extraordinarily multi-layered and deep-rooted experience of the supernatural. What on earth is it doing playing politics? where it knows nothing about it, it does it so badly, and it, it's playing to its weakest suit. You know, what we, essentially, why aren't people talking a bit more like you are um, about the supernatural? Because actually, he said, people, have, you know, the public are very interested in it. We live in one of the most, this isn't, Tom didn't say this, but I mean, I would say it, we live in the one of the most metaphysically and spiritually starved cultures has ever been. People are, which is one of the reasons why they run off to so many New Age movements and, and other very weird expressions of, of superstition and religion. And I think Tom was exactly right. So my answer to you is partly bounces off the platform of, Tom, of Tom's analysis and says that what we have to do is we have to develop people who know how to pray, who have real encounters with God, who can forge redemptive communities that spring out of that authentic religious experience and then I think what happens is instead of being didactic and sort of ticking people off acting as a as a rather nasty super ego to people you know to secular society instead they turn around and said what is that you have that smells nice that that sounds nice that tastes what is that you have we'd like a bit of that and I think that's part of the reconfiguration that the church has to do. Stop being didactic, stop, stop being the wrong kind of conscience, as if you're, you're telling people off all the time for their sexuality or for their incoherent behaviour. It's not our job to do that. Our job is to, is to bring people as close to the living God as possible and then to allow them to experience the beginnings of transformation. And I think the existential longing is so deep that that works. So I'd want to focus on some kind of appropriate reconfiguration of the monastic task. Gavin Ashenden, former chaplain to the Queen, former rebel Anglican bishop, and who knows, future married Catholic priest. Thank you very much for joining me. <laughs>